I invite you to join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Acts chapter 24. As we turn to God's Word, let's also turn to Him and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. Indeed, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Father, we are desperately hungry that you would feed us your word, your truth. As we have just sung, that the flag of our faith can only be unfurled when thou shalt breathe from heaven. And so, Father, be pleased now through your word and by your spirit to breathe from heaven and give life to these dry and maybe even dead bones. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can't remember where I was, but it was in the early 80s. Um, I was either at some fellowship of Christian athletes um, retreat. I was at some high school, something or other, like some evangelist meeting or for all the schools in the county or something. But I remember being there and hearing this statement made by the speaker. If, if you were arrested for being a Christian... Would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, maybe not arrested for, but how about accused of? I think that's a bit more common amongst our coworkers, neighbors friends, family, that you are accused of being a Christian. And again, would there be any evidence, enough evidence? Not evidence that you're a moral person, not evidence that you're very ethical, not evidence that you are a person with very strong convictions, but evidence along the lines that you have denied yourself, you have taken up your cross, and you are following Jesus. Evidence that you have received and are presently resting on Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. In our text, we'll see that at the heart of the accusations against Paul is that he is a Christian. And in our text, We'll see at the heart of Paul's defense is a testimony of his faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is prepared to make a defense for the faith that he has. Paul is prepared to share his testimony. Are you? Are you prepared? Are you prepared not only to defend the faith that was once delivered to all the saints, as we read in Jude, 
not only that, a body of doctrine, but are you also prepared to defend that faith applied, that faith expressed in your life, not the faith that sits contained here on the shelf, not in a systematic theology that's, that's on your desk, but rather the living faith that is expressed in how you live. Remember, Peter writes this in his letter, his first letter, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think often, of course, the reason nobody asks me is they don't see the hope that is in me. Why aren't people asking you? Are you, like me, sometimes hiding that hope? Is it on the shelf instead of on display? Before we begin today, let's go back and briefly think about last week. The plot thickens from chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. You know, Paul, early in Acts, after, after his conversion, uh, he had to escape. They were plotting to kill him. And here we see a, a direct secret plan and scheme made. We, we see that plot hatched, that plot uncovered, and that plot foiled. And we saw that even though God himself is not directly mentioned, that his powerful presence is highlighted through divine providence, God's most holy, wise, and powerful governing, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And we heard last week, I think, a good definition of providence. God's providence is the active outworking of God's sovereignty in everything. And we saw that last week. We saw that God chose to use the might of the Roman Empire, particularly the military, to protect Paul so that what could he so that what, what could he do? He would continue to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Today, we're going to move from the might of the military to the might of the legal establishment, as it were. We're going to open up and explore today's text by considering the words and actions of the three parties involved in the trial. The prosecution, the defense, and the judge. The prosecution, the defense, and the judge. And we're going to consider the first two parties somewhat briefly and spend a bit more time on the third party. So let's look at the prosecution and its accusation. And that's verses 1 through 9. I want to read the first four verses, these introductory remarks. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Tertullus, probably a Hellenistic Jew who serves as the Sanhedrin or the Jewish religious council's 
expert legal counsel, most likely in Roman affairs. Did you hear those remarks at the beginning? They're a bit over the top. Uh, In that day and age, it was convention to flatter someone you're going before and, and say things to gain their favor. But this is really over the top because historical evidence is such that Felix did not bring peace. He ruthlessly ruled. He crushed uprisings. He, the Jews hated him. And yet here, this lawyer, it's like the ads that you see on billboards on TV, you know, uh, um, uh, call Blake Maislin or call so-and-so to defend you or whatever. Uh, the, the Jewish council has called Tertullus to to be the spokesman, to be the lawyer, to be the prosecuting attorney representing the interest of the Jews. This over-the-top rhetoric is an attempt to gain favor with the judge, not just down the road to present evidence, facts, but no, to butter him up, to kind of bring him immediately over to the side. And Tertullus is going to lay out three charges Join with me as we read verses 5 through 6. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Three charges. And they move from the general to the specific. And if you'll notice, Tertullus is carefully clothing these charges mainly in political terms because they are going before the Roman governor who's charged with maintaining law and order and peace. And so they're slanting everything in that direction. First charge, he's a troublemaker. And you heard the word plague. You get pest and pestilence out of here. He is causing empire-wide disruption. He is leading an insurrection. He's a seditionist. He's a danger and a threat to the Roman Empire. It's kind of an echo of what was said to Pilate about Jesus. He's a troublemaker. He's a pest. He's, He's ensuring that a pestilence is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And second, he's a ringleader of a sect. He, yes, it's this, uh, this, this break off from the Jewish religion. It's a sect. And, and it's not going to be so Jewish to, to still be authorized by the Roman Empire, which was very tolerant of many religions, so long as they didn't call trouble. He's, he's leading a disruptive heresy. And they're giving him this contemptuous nickname, the Nazarenes. So he's a troublemaker. He's a ringleader. And third, he's a profaner. He's a desecrator of the temple. And we saw that a few weeks ago when he was seized or about to be seized and rescued by the Romans as the Jews from Asia thought that Paul was desecrating, profaning the temple, even though he was there to worship, even though he was there as a result of James um, asking him to be conciliatory toward the uh, Jews who were believers. So he's a troublemaker. He's a ringleader. He's a desecrator of the temple. 
He's a threat not only to the Roman Empire, but he's also a threat to our religion and our people. And in verse 8, the, uh, the spokesman, the prosecutor, makes a request to the governor. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. <laughs> they, they know their case is weak, but they're confident that if the governor cross-examines Paul, then the governor, acting as judge, will be able to verify the accusations they have made. And then, in verse 9, Luke adds the pylon. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. They had a spokesman lay out the charges, and then all the Jews pile on. It's an echo of what David said in Psalm 3. He's surrounded. Paul is not just going up against one man. He's going up against the entirety of that party that showed up in Caesarea. The summary of charges, they are broad. They are exaggerated. They are unsubstantiated, as we will see, and they are at base untruthful. Because accusers like these men here are twisting the truth. They're taking things out of context they're, they're thinking the best, excuse me, they're thinking the worst, not the best of their fellow Jew. Paul is following Jesus, and he's following Jesus in having to deal with religious leaders. Turn with me, if you would, to John 8. John 8. I just want to read a few verses beginning in verse 42. Of John 8. Again, Paul is following Jesus, and this is what Jesus had to deal with. Beginning in verse 42 of chapter 8, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Paul is following in the footsteps of his savior. So the prosecution has presented its case. What will the accused do? Will he remain silent? I believe he probably has the right to remain silent. Will somebody speak for him? Will they make a defense? No, he himself will speak. He himself will go on the stand. He will testify in his own defense. And so we're moving on to the defense and his testimony. We started with the prosecution and its accusation. And now in verses 10 through 21, it's the defense and his testimony. Now, as we begin Paul's defense, think back with me about Paul's calling. If you go to Acts chapter 9, we read this. 
But the Lord said to him, go. Speaking to Ananias, who was with Paul. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of his name. Paul is well aware of his calling. And he is before a governor. And he will soon be before a king. He knows his calling and he knows the ministry he has received. And he wants to complete it. And what is the ministry he received? What's the task he wants to finish? Of course, it's Acts 20, 24. To testify to the gospel of the grace of the glory of God. And so in Paul's testimony before the court, before the judge, he is going to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul cannot get away from his calling. He cannot get away from his ministry. Here are Paul's introductory remarks, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul is respectful, he's affirming, he's within the bounds of truth, and he is brief. He's prepared to make his defense, and he does it cheerfully because he knows Felix is familiar with the way. He knows he's familiar with Judaism. He knows he's familiar with this new offshoot of Judaism, people that follow Jesus of Nazareth. And so Paul, in following sort of the instructions of Peter, that Peter gave to the church, is prepared to give it a defense. And you will notice, as Peter continues, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's going to characterize Paul's defense. Respectful, gentle, with a good conscience. He will be on good behavior. We're going to look at his defense for the first and third charges and then consider the defense he has for his second charge. Defense number one for charge number one, verses 11 through 13. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues, or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they, what they now bring up against me. Paul says, I didn't do what they said I did. My motive, my method, and my opportunity. I, I went there to worship. I went to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to worship. Yes, I've been in cities around the Roman Empire, the northern Mediterranean, to preach and teach and share Christ, but I was going to Jerusalem to worship, to bring an offering. I'm not there to start a holy war. I didn't argue. I didn't stir up a crowd. In fact, the crowd was stirred up by my accusers, not me. And I really didn't have the opportunity to do what they said I did. I've only been there a few days. You know that, Felix. 
They, it's not true what they said I did. And then let's jump to defense number three for charge number three, jumping down to verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? I didn't defile the temple, Paul says. In fact, where are my accusers? You see, Roman law at that time meant that you had to be able to face your accusers. The Jews from Asia weren't there. And remember from a few weeks ago, they were mistaken. They thought Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. That's why the Jews were upset. And so I didn't defile the temple. And this tribune, Claudius Lysias, knows that. And the Sanhedrin know that as well, of whom I've recently spoken. Where are my accusers? Where are the eyewitnesses? Now let's go back to his defense against the second charge. The second charge. Verses 14 through 16. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul readily admits He's guilty in one sense of the second accusation. I am a follower of the way, which is a fulfillment, not the betrayal of the Hebrew scriptures. Because Paul says this, I worship the same God these men, my accusers worship, the God of our fathers. He said that my worship is guided by the same belief, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And not only that, my worship involves the same hope, a hope in God, that there will be indeed a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And my worship has, as its, it has the same aim. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience. Remember, Paul as Saul the Pharisee had a clear conscience in going to Damascus to arrest Jews, excuse me, arrest followers of Jesus and haul them off into prison. He had a clear conscience. Now that he's met Jesus the Messiah, his conscience is still clear because now he sees what he did not see before. That all the law and the prophets pointed to this Jesus as the Messiah. Paul ends up, after talking about we worship the same God, we have the same belief, we have the same hope, we have the same aim, 
he kind of rounds it off by, by making a, a, a confession of faith, a central point, once again, about the resurrection. Look with me at verses 20 through 21. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The resurrection. The centrality of the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. Paul Saul meeting the resurrected, risen Jesus changed his life. It's true for any Christian. When they meet the risen Lord, their life changes. And not only is this good legal defense strategy to talk about the resurrection, but it's also good evangelism. Because all throughout Acts, whether it's Peter or Paul or other apostles, it's preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the proof of coming judgment, as Paul tells the Athenians at Mars Hill, that because he has raised Jesus from the dead, there is a coming judgment. But it's also the promise of eternal salvation. So the prosecution has presented their charges, the accused has presented his defense, Opening and closing arguments have been made, and now the judgment is in the hands of the judge. Here comes the judge. The judge and his decision. Join with me as I pick up in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So we've seen the prosecution and their accusation. We've seen the defense and his testimony. Now we see the judge and his decision. And yet a decision is not made. Rather, a decision is delayed. Felix is protecting himself from further civil unrest by pleasing the Jews by keeping Paul in prison, but he's also protecting Paul by keeping him in protective custody. Because if Paul were out, most likely the Jews would continue the plot and Paul would end up dead. So in God's sovereign providence, this judicial delay leads to gospel declaration. 
Because during the delay, and you'll notice it's two years at least, Paul bears witness to the gospel. He speaks about faith in Jesus Christ, verse 24. Now, in verse 25, there are three topics, righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. And there have been two main views as to how best to understand why Luke would record this as Paul's topic of conversation. And, and one, of course, is personal application to Felix and Drusilla. Justice that Felix lacks. He, he's, not, he's not righteous and he's not um, acting righteously. Um, the story of Drusilla being seduced away from her husband at about 19 years old by some by a so-called magician employed by uh, Felix. Evidently, she was known for her beauty. Felix wanted her. He took her. It was his third wife. It was her second husband. Self-control, they they have none. He has none. And and this discussion of a final penalty if there is no repentance, it's true. It's true. But there's another way to view these three topics. And in particular, John Stott and others see them as three tenses of salvation. And they're both true, the personal, the personal application and the overall three tenses of salvation are true. And after studying it in the context of Acts, I've landed with a good, if not the best way to understand this, as three tenses of salvation. What do I mean? Justification. Someone has been saved. They've been declared righteous. It's once for all. So the the topic is how to be justified or declared not guilty by God. Sanctification are being saved. Self-control is an aspect of sanctification. You are being changed, you, you are overcoming temptation and gaining self-mastery during the process of progressive sanctification. And then you have, with this coming judgment, glorification. Uh, you will be saved. There will be a, a judgment of both the just and the unjust. There will be an accounting. And by bringing this topic up for the believer... They look forward to being glorified. For the unbeliever, they should look forward in terror to being condemned. So you see, for two years, Paul is talking about salvation in terms of justification, sanctification, and for the believer, glorification. The gospel centrality of Christ. He's What is he doing? He's speaking about faith in Jesus Christ. Christ came not to just show us the way, but to be the way. And we see Paul over and over again, although Luke is summarizing, he's speaking of the necessity of faith, that we are not saved by what we do, but by believing what Christ Jesus has done. So how does Paul, excuse me, how does Felix respond to being presented with the gospel? Over the course of two years, how does he respond? Look with me at verse 25 again. Felix was alarmed. He was alarmed. 
He was frightened. He was afraid, as some translations put it. If Paul had just preached a moral code, Felix would have been angry. He would have not been alarmed. If Paul had just preached, do this, do that, here are the Ten Commandments, do this and do that, Felix, I am mad at you. I am angry. How dare you tell me that? You see, preaching only the law does reveal sin. You must obey God because if you don't, he will crush you. And your motive for obedience, if all you hear is law, your motive for obedience is fear. And you remove fear, then all motivation for obedience is gone. But preaching the gospel also reveals sin. And it does it in this way. You must obey God. Because he crushed his son in your place and on your behalf so that you could be free from sin, free from sin's penalty, increasingly free from sin's power, and one day entirely free from sin's presence. You see, the gospel of the grace of God that is Paul's ministry shows us a God who is more holy than that of traditional religion. Because the demand is perfection. The demand is absolute, full, complete obedience. But the gospel shows us a God also more loving than traditional religion as well. And this kind of God is deeply alarming to Felix and anybody else who hears the truth of the gospel. Because it is more alarming than just a God who thunders out of the law and demands morality. My friends, I've said it before, I'll say it again, grace is threatening. It's threatening to all of us and there are aspects of all of us who are rule keepers. Not so much God's rules, but the rules that we ourselves make and keep. This kind of God that Paul is presenting to Felix is deeply alarming. Because the God presented in the gospel deserves actually more service and a bigger surrender because of what he's done for us. Again, if it's just fear of disobedience that motivates us, fear of punishment, all of us can hold on tight for a while. But at some point, we just won't be able to white-knuckle it through anymore. The gospel presents a God who deserves far more service and a far greater surrender than a God who just demands moral conformity because of all that he's done for us in Christ. You see, with this delayed decision, 
that procrastination can be deadly. Indecision is a decision. Uh, If you noticed in listening to this, uh, Felix is saying, hey, Paul, don't call me. I'll call you when I want to hear you. And Akes, of course, again and again, he still wants to hear. But you never hear him making a decision. You know, don't call me, I'll call you is a great way to stop telemarketers. It's a great way to send door-to-door salesmen on their way. But it's not a great way to respond to the gospel. Actually, it is deadly. Because when we choose to remain where we are, that is outside of God's saving grace, then we are still under the condemnation that is most sure to come. You see, Felix delays due to the trivial. Uh, When I have an opportunity, um, I'll ask you to come again. He delays because of fear. Fear of unrest, fear of, um, uh, he's troubled, he's uh, he's alarmed, it's fear. He's he's delays because of the political implications. He wants to please his boss back in Rome and he wants to please the Jews in Jerusalem. And don't forget, he delays because of greed. He's thinking that if he keeps Paul in prison, he's going to get money. Now, illegal, not supposed to happen, but of course... What kind of man would turn away money? When I was reading um, through this, a book on my shelf jumped off the shelf. Kids, it really didn't jump off the shelf. That's an expression. But it's this, counterfeit gods, the empty promises of money, sex, and power, and the only hope that matters. That's Felix and his wife. Money, I want a bribe. Sex, why I was attracted to you. That's why I stole you away from your husband. Power. I'm the governor of Judea. I could do what I want. And the only hope that matters. My friends, Paul has been presenting the only hope that matters. Hope in God. And Felix, to the best of our knowledge, says, tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'll get to it tomorrow. So let's end with the same question with which we began. If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let's actually set the bar a little bit lower. If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be any evidence that you indeed are guilty as charged? Evidence not along the lines of mere external rule-keeping, which any of us can do for a while. Evidence not based primarily on our political view, our educational choices that we make. Evidence rather along these lines, that it can only be exhibited through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, the present and growing Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, we display the fruit of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the gospel doesn't just inform us by God's powerful, mysterious working in us by his Holy Spirit, the gospel transforms us.
Is there evidence in your life that you really are denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus? It's gonna look different in everybody's life. There's not gonna be a cookie cutter approach. But is there evidence of self-denial? Willing to suffer and endure hardship and following Jesus. And as I like to remind myself, when I'm following, I don't get to choose where I'm going. And when I'm following, I don't get to choose what I'm going through. My friends, is there evidence that you have been saved by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ? May God be pleased to do for us and in us what we could never do for ourselves and prepare us indeed before one another and before a watching world to give a good defense for the hope that is within us, doing it with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text before us that both showed what happened in a day and what took place over the course of two years. Oh, Father, in that, would you give us patience in the trials that we endure? And would you give us patience and courage and confidence as we, like Paul, proclaim faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, the gospel indeed is alarming. It is troubling. May you do a great work in us, Father, and enable us to rest secure in what Christ has done for us, what he is doing in us, and what he has promised to bring to completion. For we pray in his name. Amen.